chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we prepare to walk through this passage of Scripture, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to set aside all the cares of this world at this moment. And that like Mary, we would simply sit at the feet of Christ and hear from you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the meaning of Paul's words, that he desired to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our lives you would transform our hearts, and that you would enable us to live lives of worship on a deeper level. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what should be the central focus of the church? What should be the, the sine qua non of the local church or even of the universal church for that matter. In other words, why do we do church? Why does the church exist? Why do we gather for corporate worship on the Lord's day? You know, many Christians never really ponder that question as to why. Because it doesn't really matter to many Christians. The only thing that matters to many Christians is that they enjoy what they see and what they hear and what they experience. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter why the church exists, only that I am getting from the church the things that I want or the things that I think I need. What matters is that they are getting something out of it, that they are somehow being blessed by it, that they are somehow benefiting from it. In fact, many Christians view corporate worship the same way that they view a grocery store. It's a great place to go if they have what I want. 
But if they don't have what I want, well, then I'll just go somewhere else. Or maybe I won't go anywhere. At this point in church history, the word consumerism has probably been overused at this point, but I can't think of a better word, and so I will continue to use it. But it's true that much of evangelicalism has been plagued, I think, by a consumerist mentality. For many Christians, church has become about what I want, about meeting my needs, rather than about what God wants, what God desires, about glorifying and worshiping God. The problem is that when churches cater to consumerism, they begin to appeal to the masses. What is it that the people are looking for? What's going to keep bringing them back? Because that's what we desire. And when churches do that, they become more driven by business principles rather than being driven by biblical principles. They become more driven by capitalism rather than being driven by confessions and creeds. They become more driven by human greed rather than being driven by God's glory. Churches who are being driven by consumerism are the product of Christians having an overinflated view of themselves. That's really what it comes down to. Churches and too many Christians have an overinflated view of themselves so that the end result is what we have is humanism cloaked in evangelicalism. It's no coincidence that consumerism began creeping into the churches during the rise of the Industrial Revolution. The late 1800s in England, the early 1900s in the United States, you see, because the Industrial Revolution was driven by an extreme competition for consumers. They realized that in order to become large and wealthy and in demand by everyone, they needed to attract consumers and they needed to keep attracting those same consumers over and over again. This led to an explosion of private business, which led to the rise of modern-day monopolies, immortalizing names like Rockefeller and Vanderbilt and Carnegie. It was not long before the church began to take notice. And they began to realize that, look at how big these companies are getting. Look at how influential they are becoming. Look how much power they wield on society. Well, we can do the same. We can do the same. And so they began to implement their corporate principles into corporate worship. These principles, however, never should have taken root. These principles never would 
have taken root had churches possessed a more biblical view of the central focus and purpose of the church. Because in the view of many evangelicals, the goal was to reach the masses rather than guard the deposit entrusted to the church. 1 Timothy 6.20. Well, what is that deposit that has been entrusted to the church that we are to guard tenaciously? Well, this is what we're going to talk about this morning. What is to be the primary focus and the primary purpose of the universal church, but also of any local church, and of this church? And so in our text, Paul continues in chapter 2, and I say continue, and I will... uh, Always try to use that language and not say Paul begins for good reason because I always want you to understand that these chapter divisions are not here in the text, in the original text. The subheadings are not there. The the verse numbering system is not there. This was one letter that Paul wrote so that chapter 1 flows into chapter 2. And so Paul continues in... Verse 1, and says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul is reminding them of the first time that he came to them in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. You can go back and read about it there. He comes to Corinth for the first time, and there he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And as is his custom, he goes into the synagogue and he shares the gospel with them, debates with them for some time, finally gives up. None of them will believe. He shakes his cloak off and says, I'm done. Shaking the dust off. I'm going out to the Gentiles. And there he finds many converts. He actually ends up staying in Corinth for three years, ministering to them, establishing the church there in Corinth. And he is reminding them that when he first came to them in Corinth, he is drawing a contrast between himself and the rhetoricians and the sophists of that day. He says, when I came to you, remember, remember that when I came to you, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Because you have to understand that they were used to hearing the professional rhetoricians and the sophists of of that day and age. And the sophists were a group of uh, individuals. Now, this wasn't an official title that they held. It wasn't a club that they were a part of. But they were known as sophists by the people. comes from the Greek word sophia for wisdom. And these were essentially traveling public speakers who would travel from city to city within Greece Oftentimes, they were paid by wealthy families to come to their cities and to stand in the the public forum and to give these speeches to the people. And they would draw crowds, men and women and children, who would listen for hours to these amazing speeches. And I know in this modern day and age, right, of uh, entertainment overload, right, we can think to ourselves, really? But you have to understand 
that these were the, the Hollywood celebrities of their day and age. Before the days of television and Shakespeare, right, their form of entertainment in Greece was listening to these professional speakers who would write these amazing speeches and they would, they would wax eloquent on the meaning of life and the, the, the pros and cons of a republic or a democracy or the meaning of justice or how we implement justice into the world and what does that look like. They would talk about ethics and ethical behavior. And people loved to listen. They had their favorite sophists who would come through town periodically and would stand and give these amazing speeches that would simply wow and astound their audience. And Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he says, look, I didn't come to you that way. When I came to you, I did not come with lofty and impressive prepared speeches to wow you, but instead I came to you with the simple message of the gospel. Came to you with the simple message of the gospel. Which is what he says in verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so beginning with the word for, he is telling us here is the explanation. Here is the reason for verse 1. For, because, explanatory, this is why. In other words, this was intentional. Paul intentionally did not go into Corinth with prepared, eloquent speeches. Because I decided beforehand to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. What does he mean by that? Does Paul mean that, you know, I decided just to sort of do a brain dump, and I wasn't going to know anything about anything, about science or philosophy or history. I was just going to plead ignorance of everything else. I don't think Paul meant that. Paul was an intelligent, well-educated individual. I also don't think it meant that Paul was only going to ever talk about the gospel and nothing else. I'm never going to bring in philosophy. I'm never going to bring in history. I'm never going to bring in science because we see Paul doing that in other places in the book of Acts. Rather, I think what Paul means is that he decided to focus on, to make it his primary focus, the thing that he most focused on and talked about was the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, because Paul, Paul understands that the gospel doesn't need to be pre-wrapped in this pretty little package with a bow on top of it, in order to have its desired effect upon human nature. We don't have to dress it up. In and of itself, the gospel is sufficient to change lives. He understands 
The gospel message itself is the power of God unto salvation. He says that in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I love those verses. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Because in it, that is in the gospel message, in it, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is revealed to humanity from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, would it, why does he say that in Romans chapter 1? Because understand that the gospel message to the unbelieving world is ridiculous. The world will make fun of you. This, this idea that you worship a crucified God, that this gospel message has the power to really change people's lives and to change the world is absurd. You Christians are like intellectual Neanderthals. The world will make fun of you. They will ridicule you for living your life according to the rules and teachings of a man who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed to stand with Christ. I'm not ashamed to profess the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul understood that the power to transform lives does not reside up here. It's not about how well we can present persuasive arguments, how well we can argue apologetics, how well we can quote scripture here and there and impress people with our amazing memory. The power to transform lives. The power to mend broken relationships. The power to restore broken marriages. The power to reconcile broken families. The power to fix all of the problems that the world is dealing with is in the gospel. It's the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understands that people simply need to hear the message of the cross, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Reminds me of a, one of my favorite Luther quotes, the ever-quotable Luther. They're not always PG-rated. But Luther once said that our job is to get the gospel from our mouth to their ear, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to get it from their ear to their heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of opening people's eyes. This is not only because what the scriptures teach, but both Paul, the apostle Paul, and Luther understood that it must be this way. Because unbelievers are dead in their transgressions and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 1. They're dead. Dead people cannot see. 
Dead people cannot move. Dead people cannot embrace. Dead people cannot intellectually assent to some theological truth because they're dead. You talk to a dead person all you want and try to convince them to get up off the table. They're not going to do it. Listen to the language that Paul uses right here in Corinthians. We don't even have to go that far. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 14. Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. My friends, this is why it is so important to pay close attention to the words found in Scripture. Because God does not mince words and God does not waste words. Every word is there for a reason. Notice Paul says the natural person, which is his way of describing an unbeliever, by the way. That's what he means by that. He means human beings in their natural state, which is sin, in bondage to sin. That is our natural state. Apart from the internal work of the Holy Spirit, we are by nature enslaved to sin. And he says the natural person, notice that he does not say, notice what he does not say. He does not say the natural person struggles to accept the things of God. He doesn't say the natural person may not understand the things of God. He says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He then says he is not able to understand them. He doesn't say the natural person struggles to understand the things of God. The natural person may not understand the things of God. The natural person wrestles with the things of God. He says the natural person is not able to understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. I can give you a sheet of paper with hieroglyphics on it from the Egyptian hieroglyphics. You stare at that paper all you want. You're never going to figure out what it says unless somebody helps you understand what it says. The natural person does not accept the things of God. The natural person is not able to understand the things of God. It's the same as saying the natural person cannot fly, apart from something aiding you. But without something aiding you, by yourself, you cannot fly. You flap your arms all you want. You're going to fall like a rock because people don't fly. Unbelievers in their unbelieving state cannot accept nor understand the things of God. These are the words of Paul. So then how do we get saved? Chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Paul understands the only thing 
that people need. The only thing that will bring people to life from the dead is the simple message of the cross of Christ. The gospel is what people need. They don't need bells and whistles. They don't need flowery, lofty speech. They don't need all kinds of amazing programs or awesome worship experiences. They need Christ and him crucified. And so he reminds them again in verses 3 and 4. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And so he reminds them again that he didn't come to them trying to impress them. Paul says, I didn't come to you like the sophists, the professional rhetoricians, came with just a simple message of the gospel. But what does he mean when he says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling? I do not think he means that he was ill in weakness because you go back to Acts chapter 18 and there's no indication that Paul was weak physically or that he was ill in any way. That's not why he came to them. Or when he says, in fear and much trembling, it's not that Paul was afraid. Paul was never afraid to share the gospel. We know that Paul had an incredible boldness to march right into a synagogue surrounded by Jews that he knew, if I say the wrong thing, they're going to drag me out and stone me. But he did it anyways. I think that what Paul means is that he often uses this kind of language to communicate humility and dependence on God, and a lack of pride or arrogance, which would be the opposite of the sophists and the rhetoricians, right? They were filled with pride and arrogance. They would stand in the public forum and give these speeches and essentially say to everybody listening, if you would just listen to me, glean from my amazing wisdom, the world would be Paul says, no, I came to you in humility and dependence on God without pride or arrogance. I'll give you a couple of examples of where I'm getting that from. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, and talking about Titus coming to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.15, and his affection, referring to Titus, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Right? Titus wasn't afraid, but that's Paul's language for talking about humility and this dependence upon God. And they received Titus in that way, with humility, dependence. On God. He uses the same language regarding Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Talking about Christ, he says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. 
For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. He was crucified in weakness. As far as we know, Jesus was not a weak person, physically or spiritually for that matter. Rather, this is Paul's way of saying that he was crucified in humility and ultimate dependence upon God. And we also, believers, are weak in Christ, or at least we should be. It should be an evidence of the Holy Spirit that we are humble in Christ and we are dependent upon Christ and upon God. Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we just looked at it a couple of weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 1.25. Paul says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When we covered that text, I asked the question, is there any aspect of God that can be rightly be described as foolish? Of course not. Is there any aspect of God that we can say is weak or weaker than any other aspect? No, of course not. So what does Paul mean by this? It's exactly what I'm saying, that the weakness of God is stronger than men. The humility of God is greater than anything the world has to offer. We know that Christ, God himself, is humble because we know that Christ is God's humility personified. Christ is the humility of God made human for us to see and to behold. And so he reminds them that he did not come with impressive speeches, but he came in humility and complete dependence on God and in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Clearly, I think this is a reference to the power of God through the gospel to transform lives, is what he means by that. Paul is not, I think, talking about miracles or amazing signs. Look at 118. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the gospel, is the power of God. The simple message of the cross is the power of God to transform lives. He says that again in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. So when Paul says he came in the demonstration of spirit and of power, I don't think he's talking about miracles. He is saying he did not come trying to convince them with eloquent speech or with miracles, but rather he wanted them to be convinced by witnessing the transforming power of the gospel in people's lives. Because that is the greatest evidence as I was preparing my sermon, at this point I thought to myself, you know, it would be great to offer a couple of illustrations from church history of men who were just so far gone, everybody had lost hope in them, and uh, God amazingly got hold of them and saved them, and they went on to live for the glory of Christ. The problem is I could not whittle that list down to like below 500. 
church history is just replete with story after story after story of people who lived horrendous lives, horrible lives, sinful lives, were involved in some of the deepest, darkest activities that you can imagine, and nothing would change them, nothing would help them until one day they heard the gospel. A simple gospel presentation radically changed their life from that day forward. It wasn't a program. It wasn't some philosophy. It was a simple message that God stepped out of the glories of heaven and became human. He lived a perfect life in obedience to his own law in order to earn for us the righteousness that God demands. And then he died on the cross as a sinless human being to absorb onto himself the wrath of God that we deserve. And if you will simply put your faith in Christ and believe with your whole heart that he did all of that for you, then eternal life and forgiveness of sins are forever yours. It's that simple. It is the simple message of the gospel. And so Paul says, I came to you not with lofty speech, not with great miracles, but the simple message of the gospel so that you would be convinced through the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit can do through the gospel. But why is that? Look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that your faith might not be grounded in the wisdom of men or what this world has to offer, but that your faith would be grounded in See, Paul knew that if their conversion, the church in Corinth, if their conversion was effected by his power of persuasion or by his eloquent speeches, then that is what their faith would be grounded upon. And Paul didn't want that. You see, here is an important truth that sadly too many churches too many pastors and too many Christians have just failed to latch onto or to figure out for some reason. And that is this. The thing that you use, the thing that a church uses, the thing that a person uses to attract other people to the church or to Christianity or to Christ, is the thing upon which their faith will be grounded. And it won't be on Christ. In other words, the man behind the pulpit who attracts a huge following and grows a mega church because of his amazing charismatic personality 
and the wonderful speeches that he gives, and he is so good-looking, and his wife is great-looking. That church will nearly die if they don't die the moment it comes out that he's actually flawed. He actually has sins. Some of these are horrible sins. I can't believe he would do that. Some of those people will find other churches. Many of them will never go back. Because their faith was grounded upon him and upon his amazing personality and not upon Christ and him crucified. Churches that attract people to the church, to Christianity, to Christ, because of all of the bells and whistles that they offer, all of the great programs, the amazing light show that they have, the amazing worship music that they provide, all of the programs that meet everybody's heartfelt need. When those things, for some reason, are suddenly not there, they're done. I mean, it's no wonder that the statistics keep getting worse about children who grow up in the church and then they leave home to go to college or to find a job somewhere else, and they might poke around for a church for a little bit, but then they just don't go. Why? Because my church that I came from had all of these amazing things that they offered. I mean, if the church is a grocery store, man, I was at a supermarket. It was like a mega grocery store. They had everything my heart could desire. The shelves were stacked. And now that I'm here, I've tried all the churches in the area, and the only thing they seem to offer is Christ. Well, I'm not interested. I'll just go somewhere else, or I just won't go anywhere at all. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I want your faith to be grounded in the power of God and not in the wisdom of man. I want your faith to be grounded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want your faith to be grounded upon Christ and him crucified. This is what we want at Tapestry. What we've always wanted at Tapestry from the very beginning is that we would be a church that simply offers Christ and him crucified. That's all we offer here is one thing. So you think you need more than just Christ and him crucified? I hate to break it to you, but you're in the wrong place. We want a church that truly believes and truly lives out the centrality of the cross. That truly believes and lives out that every aspect of your life should revolve around Christ and him crucified. It should all be driven by the cross of Christ. Your personal life, your marriage, your parenting, your family, 
your work. It's all about Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I need to qualify what I'm saying. All of the various ministries that we do, and we do a lot, and I hope we'll do more, are all valuable and important and biblical. Feeding the hungry, handing out food boxes, putting gas in people's cars, hosting backyard Bible clubs, right? All of these things matter. All of these things are biblical. All of these things are important. But all of these things must be a means to an end and not an end in itself. And that end is Christ crucified. Everything that we do should be driven by the idea that we want to be a, we want to be a, a mirror and not a window. It's like the passage we read this morning, just coincidentally, it just occurred to me this morning how God kind of matches these things up just perfectly. The reading of the law from Matthew chapter 6, fasting to be seen by others. Too many churches, too many Christians, too many pastors engage in that. They want to be a window. In other words, look through the window and look at me and see how great I am. Look at our church and see how wonderful we are. But as Christians and as a church, we ought to strive to be a mirror. That as people look in the direction of our ministries and serving, they see a reflection and they see this. They see Christ and him crucified. This is and should be the focus of every Christian, the focus of every church. Don't look at me. Don't look at us. Look to Christ. Because if you look at us, or if you look at me, I hate to break it to you, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Because I'm a sinner just like the rest of you. Ultimately, the end that we ought to always strive for is to place before the eyes of all people, Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to live out this truth. Lord, it is so easy to slip into that pattern of wanting people to look at us, wanting to be patted on the back for how amazing we are, wanting to lead people to Christ so that we can pat ourselves on the back and hopefully have someone else pat us on the back and say, you did a great job. Father, we pray that you would help us to not do that. We pray that you would make us into a church even more so. 
We pray for every believer in this room that we would strive to live our lives a life that revolves around Christ and Him crucified. That everything that we do and say and think would ultimately be driven by a desire to point people to Christ and to say, look to Him, but not to me. Don't look to us. Look to Christ. And there you'll find your answer. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.